1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of fight back from the week that was we started the week discussing a serious and important issue amending the law on medical assistance in dying as of Monday Canadians can now give the federal government feedback on how best to do that. We've been given two weeks to fill out an online questionnaire. But is that enough time, given the profound nature of the questions that have to be resolved? They include whether to make psychiatric evaluations mandatory for all patients, whether to change the standard 10-day reflection period patients are supposed to wait, and whether the doctor or nurse practitioner should be obligated to consult the patient's family or loved ones. The questionnaire is being offered after the Superior Court of Quebec ruled it's unconstitutional to allow only Canadians near death to seek this kind of medical assistance. And the federal Liberals are also facing a tight deadline. If no new legislation is passed by March 11th, the reasonably foreseeable provision in the law will be suspended in Quebec. Joining Libby Nimer to discuss our Zoomer squad... Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor
2: of Zoomer Magazine. CARP doesn't have time to prepare an in-depth report in 10 days, does it?
3: We'll have to send out a survey fairly quickly, and we And then
2: coalesce the results and then bring it back and and develop recommendations. It it seems very unlikely. So maybe maybe the government is more than happy to just let it slide and, and adopt whatever the court said in Quebec, you know, just... And And if
3: the reasonably foreseeable provision is suspended, what does that mean? Exactly. Is it a free-for-all? Can anyone obtain it at any time? And I think that that's a real concern and it ought to be for the federal government. Well, it
4: ought to be for the Quebec government too. (laughs) Sure, sure. So part of what obviously the
3: consultation is going to consider, access for mature minors is something that is a hot topic for some people. Obviously, CARP does not have a position on this. We won't be taking a position. Another is for... People being a- able to access it with mental health issues. Yeah. Now, again, CARP doesn't have a position on this. I'm personally uh, uncomfortable with it. I'd rather see resources directed to improving mental health access across the country. You know, there is very limited funding for it. And we know that people struggle to pay for services as it is. Most employers only cover, you know, $500 a year for, you know, psychotherapy. And this will get you, what, two sessions with a therapist? So I would prefer, in my own opinion, to see resources directed there. Now the the I think the hottest topic of them all is advanced directives. Yeah. So let's say, you know, joy. Um, requests an assisted death and, uh, it's scheduled. And right now at the time of death, the doctor comes in and says, you know, do you know why I'm here? Yes. Are you comfortable with moving forward? Except typically that's not how it happens is someone will come in, they'll schedule it. And then it'll often take a week or two or some time from the point of, you know, making this decision, having all your paperwork signed off on. And then it, the, pr- the procedure actually being performed. And what happens if in that waiting period, Joy falls into a coma legally, a doctor could not perform an assisted death, so that will be some of the scenarios that the government tries to grapple with as they look to expand well
4: this. I, I, yes and and it 's also the question i mean even in I, I think that most assisted deaths involve cancer, but even with cancer, you know if, if you get to the point where where you 've basically in a coma. It's it's off. Or what about people with Alzheimer's who... Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, one of the ironies with the whole thing is that it can mean that people choose to die before they otherwise would, because right. they have to be in control of their faculties. But I'm not, I'm not sure dementia
3: even qualifies as reasonably foreseeable death. So that'll be, you're right, I think dementia will be part of this consultation. Um, right now, obviously, it, you know, if you're diagnosed with dementia and it's still early days and you're able to give consent and you can say in that time, I'd like to uh, receive an assisted death, should that person have the right to access that's that procedure but then you have to consider too you know there are seven stages of dementia so what happens if someone in er, stage one says i'd like to receive an assisted death once i get to the point where i'm you know diaper drooling and demented so stage seven the the challenge there is in that stage they can't give consent Mm -hmm. and so that's where the whole advanced directive comes in it's obviously um it's a very uh uh emotional subject for people and so it'll be interesting to see sort of how the government what the government hears from folks across the country
4: do you think that the government will actually tackle all of these issues um you know in meeting this deadline
2: each of these cases are so personal so individual and i'm not sure how you can come up with legislation that covers every single possible nuance in this whole thing and and unless you sort of give blanket freedom or you know, anytime you're going to make one restriction, someone's going to find that unconstitutional and, and argue it. And the other thing is, they have to take this incredibly complicated legislation and pass it through three readings and then royal consent, and do it in under two months. And it, with a minority government, again, that seems it seems to me very unlikely that the current time frame is, is, is going to allow that to happen.
1: Peter Mugrich, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. Zoomer Radio's Fight Back Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. So was it just a big screw-up, or was there more to it than that? Last Sunday morning at 7.30, many of us were awakened by an alert from the Pickering nuclear power plant, which later was revealed as a false alarm and a mistake. A full investigation is being promised, but Fightback tried to find out what went wrong. Libby was joined by the minister in charge, Ontario Solicitor General Sylvia Jones, along with NDP energy critic Peter Tabins, and Ted Gretzner, a former Corporate Relations and Communication Specialist at Ontario Power Generation.
5: I, like everybody else, was, uh, I, was I was awake, um, but I, I saw the notice go off and I thought at first it might be an Amber Alert and I was, I was kind of surprised it was a nuclear event. But I was able to, just because I kind of know the, where to look, um, determine it wasn't likely or a real thing. My understanding is it was an internal communication test, uh, it wasn't meant to go public. That being said, like you said, normally in you know the any communications crisis plan, you're going to test and retest and rehearse and do uh, mock emergencies. You do put this is a test, it's an exercise, a drill, whatever wording you want to choose, because you kind of assume that it will it could get out by accident, and you want to prevent just what happened yesterday. The other thing I think also that they're going to want to look at from a communications professional perspective is yeah, it was a test, but is is was that wording they would actually use because it seemed to raise more questions than it actually answered in a prime rule of communications theory in crisis communications is you want to make sure people are a feeling comfortable um and be know what they're supposed to do if anything
4: i'd like to bring in peter Tabbins. he is the ndp energy critic are you inclined to think this was just a basically a a screw-up
6: it's important enough its consequences are serious enough that it needs to be looked at by an independent body so that we know exactly what happened and so that we can make sure that in the future, if we have a mistake like this, that people don't have to wait two hours to hear that there's an all-clear. I mean, there was the initial problem, they sent out an incorrect message, but not having a system in place to correct it very rapidly is extremely worrying to me. When you send out an alert to what may have been millions of people you're dealing with pretty substantial power. To have not informed OPG that you were sending that out is quite shocking to me. If that is the case, well, because my it wasn't supposed to go public. Well, no, I yeah.
5: understand that, yeah. but yeah, I'm not defending anything that happened because I wasn't involved. I'm just saying that if you're just if you are thinking I'm just doing a closed system and no one's going to see it, I'm just testing a technical thing. Um, you wouldn't necessarily have to tell others.
4: Yeah, and they should have really, it should have had text saying this is a test.
6: Yeah, I I understand what both of you were saying, Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the reality to me is that we know all systems can fail, that people will make mistakes, and you have to have systems built in to check those things and to respond quickly, and apparently that's not there. Mm -hmm. I I think we need someone to look into it. There may have been human error, apparently, but what were the system errors? such that something like this could go uncorrected for as long as it went. We have to have a system that people have confidence in. Uh, Flash floods, tornadoes, fires, uh, nuclear incidents at this plant or any other plant. People need to know when they get the message that this is serious. They have to pay attention to it. They have to act. And when you undermine the credibility of the system, You're setting things up for people to be in danger further down the road.
4: Now I'm going to bring in Ontario Solicitor General Sylvia Jones. Where are you at on this? What's your reaction and what do you think has to be done? First
7: and foremost, uh, as I issued yesterday, an apology um, to the people of Ontario who were unduly made nervous and had questions as of uh, Sunday morning. Uh, I've said before, it's not how um, people of Ontario should start their Sunday, and uh, for that, I apologize. That is why I have tasked and uh, directed that um, Doug Brown, the Chief of Emergency Management Ontario, uh, has launched a full investigation on exactly what happened Sunday morning. Uh, Clearly, a test that happens twice a day uh, went out to the public, which was completely Completely inappropriate, uh, made people unduly nervous, and uh, we need to drill down to specifically find out how and why it happened. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? I think it's important for uh, people to um, understand that on behalf of the province of Ontario and the Provincial Emergency Operations Centre, I apologize for the inconvenience. Uh, It should not have happened, and I'm uh, working hard with my ministry and the the Provincial Emergency Operations Centre to make sure it never happens again.
1: Ontario Solicitor General Sylvia Jones, along with NDP energy critic Peter Tabbins and Ted Gretzner, a former corporate relations and communications specialist at Ontario Power Generation. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Libby, welcome back this past Tuesday, our strategy panelists for their first session of 2020. Top of mind were the ramifications of the tragedy of Ukrainian Airlines flight 752. Canada's investigators are now on the ground in Iran. While we learned early this week, Iran has apparently made some arrests in the shoot down of the jetliner. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been offering updates and words of comfort almost daily in the wake of the tragedy. And on Monday, he said the victims of Flight 752 would be home in Canada with their families if the animosity between Washington and Iran had not been heightened.
2: I think if there were no uh, tensions, if there was no uh, escalation recently in the region, uh, those uh, Canadians would be right now home with their families. Uh, this is something that happens when you have conflict and war. Innocents bear the brunt of it.
1: To talk about the Prime Minister's handling of the crisis, along with other developments, Charles Byrd, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto, Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard Highroad.
8: I, I think, and I give credit where the credit is due, I think the Prime Minister's handled it well. I, I think from his tone, the fact that he's out there... Um, um, you know, talking to the families that were uh, that uh, that were affected by this, I think was is a good step. Um, I'm not sure that that we're going to get any specific answers from Iran, uh, given the fact that we've cut diplomatic diplomatic ties from Iran for for a number of years. But the fact that we've got investigators in there is a good sign, because at one point we they we believed that we were not going to get any uh, investigators inside that it was going to be done purely by by Iran. But I guess that was before they admitted that they they had made a mistake, and they have since then done, done that. Uh, I think we need to keep the pressure on. I think. Families need to have closure. They need to know what exactly happened. And more importantly, uh, those who are responsible pay the price in one way or another. And if they're being incarcerated, that's great. But who knows if they are. And until Iran lets us know and and, and shows us names and pictures of people behind bars, we're never going to know if that's the case or not.
4: Karen, uh, do you agree that the prime minister is handling this well?
9: Well, you know, I I think that it's always in uh, our interest and the national interest to to, um, portray calm in the face of all of the other upset that's occurring. Um although I, I do think that Justin Trudeau has legitimate reason to be really frustrated with the United States of America because we continue to get involved in their foreign policy and it continues to be bad for Canadians. When we arrested the uh the you know the, the, the CEO of Huawei yeah. and now, now we've got two Canadians rotting in a Chinese prison, we don't know what's happening to them. Now we don't even know that that President Trump is going to take this action and bond this um, senior, uh, you know, Iranian official. Iranian official, and then all of a sudden, now we've got 57 Canadians that are dead. And and we're not part of any of those decisions. And yet, Canadians are bearing the brunt of those we're decisions. We're not even informed. We're not even informed of them. About
4: those decisions, though, uh, you know, you could argue there's there's nothing that we could have done about it.
9: There's nothing we could have done about it, potentially, but being aware of it, certainly we could have then issued our own advisories to Canadians traveling in Iran that maybe they don't want to get on a plane. <laughs> but, you know, and why were the planes allowed to take off? And also, well, yeah, and if the Iranians, the reason I think Iran Iran is taking the actions that they're taking around arresting these these individuals is because the Iranian people are frustrated that the Iranians bombed military, U.S. military sites, and there were no injuries, and yet Iranian people are, are being blown out of the sky. Charles Bird, I mean... You You know, there are
4: some people who believe, I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but there are people who don't believe that this downing of this plane was exactly an error.
10: I I tend to differ from that view. What's happened in Iran with the Republican Guard effectively shooting down a, a passenger flight, a domestic flight, or rather, a, a, you know, clearly a, a commercial flight is disastrous. I mean, you think about what happened to the Russians in terms of the shooting down of Malaysian Airlines 17 over the Ukraine, and they denied all responsibility, even though it was widely known that it was Russian militants who'd uh, uh, effectively shot the plane out of the sky. And Russia became something of an international pariah overnight. And it's a status that they seem intent on clinging to. And so I think the Iranians realized that this notion of mechanical uh, problems as being the the result, uh, resulting in the crash of the plane just wasn't sustainable. And it, it's it's ironic, but one of the motivating factors may have been that Donald Trump may not have shaken them off their position with regards to what happened to that plane, but the International Civil Aviation Organization, which is responsible for, for commercial travel and international travel, were actually in a position if Iran had failed to turn over the black box, it had failed to be forthcoming in terms of evidence, would have been in a position to cut off Iran's international flights and likely would not have hesitated to do so just given the, 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 the sheer number of casualties. And, and so it's ironic that an international body may be responsible for Iran's turnaround.
8: I think there was that, that civil unrest that's happening yeah. uh, and the pressure that's been put on from their, from their own citizens I think yeah. was huge an amount of, of, of pressure. but also the the, the films and the, and the data that came back that showed that there's no possible yeah. way mm-hmm. that it was done anything and quite frankly, uh, it was it was a sin to our, to ukrainians, um and the pilots and, and the servers to say that that they was a fault mm-hmm. that they did yeah. and I think that causes even more uh, consternation amongst, uh, amongst ukrainians quite rightly. Uh, when there was at least that blame that they were the ones that caused the accident.
1: John Capobianco, Charles Byrd, and Karen Stintz, our Tuesday strategy panel. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Now to the royal riff and the many questions which follow the Queen's decision to allow her grandson, Prince Harry, and his wife, Duchess Meghan, to live in Canada part-time while becoming financially independent. What does that mean for us as Canadian taxpayers and any financial costs we may have to incur to ensure their security? And what about their immigration status? If they're not visiting royals, do they have to become landed immigrants like everyone else? To find out, Libby was joined by Richard Curland, a Vancouver-based immigration lawyer, along with security expert and commentator Ross McLean.
11: What happens is we have uh, Canada, as all countries do, have an international obligation to protect internationally protected people. That's why we've got, everybody has embassies uh, when they do state visits. If it's the head of uh, a government, the head of state that comes over, there's a requirement that the host country that is there provides uh, security for those people that is adequate to protect them where they're uh, living, where their transportation is, and where their meetings are. So... Generally speaking, if the uh, Prince Harry and, and Meghan were to come over, doing royal business on behalf of the Queen, who's the head of state, uh, they would typically have uh, security provided by, by the RCMP and local police for doing things. However, with this new kettle of fish that we're having here, the question is, are they over here working for themselves or for the Queen? In which case do they meet the definition?
4: Okay, let's bring in Richard Curlin. And Richard, you've said that Harry wouldn't even qualify to become a landed immigrant.
12: Well, it would be difficult under current rules without uh, jumping through special high-level hoops, uh, political and administrative, for, uh, for the spouse of Megan to qualify. The family is better placed by having uh, Megan. Apply as the primary applicant with the uh, two accompanying dependents in in her uh, immigration file, and that's because Canada has a special uh, cultural artistic category in in, in the self employed uh, context that would uh, present a compelling case for her. That's based on the evidence of her Uh, past uh, history in the television industry, in fact, the television industry in Canada. And so uh, she'd have to queue up uh, her case uh, along with the others in this particular uh, processing category. Uh, There's nothing overnight. It would take 18 to 36 months to achieve permanent resident status. In the interim, uh, the British Columbia Premier uh, rightly pointed out uh, uh, that she may well be eligible for a uh, work permit authority in the film and entertainment industry in British Columbia. So their prospects are glowing. Uh, in terms of the security costs, I'm just going to stab that. Uh, don't forget that the presence of this uh, royal couple in the particular location on Vancouver Island will likely generate significant economic activity for British Columbia. Not just in uh, property transactions for the uh, rich and famous or uh, folks who are high net worth globally and uh, like what uh, the royals like, uh, but the uh, attending economic stimulation. So you've you got to balance both sides of that security ticket.
4: Ross, uh, basically, where would you like to leave us with on this? What happens next, do you think, in terms of that possibly big security bill?
11: Well, I imagine we'll volunteer to pick it up, but it's uh, it's it's a big number and it's a, it's a big undertaking and uh, we're already stressed enough for doing it. So if we need to help them with the transition, let's help them with the transition, as you said but somehow wean them off and get, figure out doing their own thing. And, you know, don't forget, there's a lot of other people who come here as immigrants who don't get lots of breaks, who want to work and can't work and all sorts of things. So maybe they need to set the example by following the rules.
1: Security expert Ross McLean and Richard Curland, a Vancouver-based immigration lawyer. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Sam in Toronto called. He's of Iranian heritage and reacted to a statement from Maple Leaf Foods CEO Michael McCain, who blames U.S. President Donald Trump for the deaths of 57 Canadians in the Ukrainian jetliner shootdown,
5: Calling this person Mr. McCain, the, this company, courageous, is kind of ironic.
0: Courageous are those thousands and thousands of young Iranian women and men facing death protesting ideological Islamist regime. Those are the courageous people. They know who is at fault. They're the one who are the judge of the nature of this regime. They themselves are saying, You are at fault. Nobody is defending Trump. Trump simply killed a terrorist. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot
1: of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jane in Mississauga, who told us her very personal story of assisted
13: death. My husband uh, passed away a week a week ago. We uh, found out about the maid program and it was perfect for my husband. He um, had been dealing with a um, very rare uh, heart condition and and he was getting to the point of really suffering and he had talked to uh, his longtime 40-year family doctor who uh, totally agreed with him. My husband was 91, very sound mind, very sharp, knew exactly what he was doing, and was just so pleased. He said, "This is for me." It couldn't have been more peaceful, and uh, to me, it's it's been like helping me with the grieving process because everything we were able to plan together, and uh, I I hate to think that two weeks. Is um, all that people are going to get to comment on this because I don't think uh, most people even know it's available to begin with. That
1: does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416 360 0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back.
0: The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer, Moses Neimer.